Uh, you can have your Bibles handy. No particular passage this morning. Uh, we have now considered the fullness of the historical narrative surrounding both the ark and the flood, and we're just about ready to move on after we formally connect the dots between what God did in the days of Noah and what God is doing in our day today and what God will be doing in our times in the future. And this connection uh, falls into a study of what we will call in theological circles typology. And, and, and hang on today because we've got a lot to cover. There's going to be uh, uh, um, some learning before we get into the scriptures themselves. I want to introduce you to this idea for those of you that are perhaps not familiar, for those of you that we've talked through this before, um, and, and we have, but it's been a little while. Hopefully it'll be a good refresher for you. The idea uh, in typology or the, the concept of typology as it relates to the Bible is that God has woven into history various events and people, times and places, which he explicitly intends in history to be representative lessons for a future time. Types, or we might call them in a sense object lessons or, or people that are representatives, which uh, though they have a significance of their own in their time and in their history, are also intended by God from the beginning to be a shadow of a greater truth which God would reveal at a future time. And then this harkens back to those, he harkens back to those previous events as a means by which to help us understand current events better. Now, as I teach you this morning on types, I'm getting into an area which has been uh, heavily, it, it, is, it is one that is not, uh, it's slightly ambiguous in the church, and it is one that throughout church history has actually been heavily abused. If, we, if you were to go online and you were to dig into the idea of Old Testament symbols, which people believe represent something in today's world or in the New Testament, you would find no end of ideas rooted in this idea, in this concept of symbology. People seeing events, people seeing instruments, people seeing especially numbers as significant and representative of something in their world or in their life. And this is something that we need to be careful about because symbology in the scriptures has fallen into the same traps that I've warned you about over the last several weeks as it relates to reading between the lines, as it relates to the Nephilim controversy and the like. People chasing shadows, running down rabbit trails of their own making, calling things God's design and then focusing on those things when in fact they are not God's design and they have very little profit at the expense of those things which God does intend us to focus upon. In other words, symbology can distract us from the truth and intended meaning of the text if we get too deep into the weeds of seeing in everything a symbol, in everything an allegory, in everything something representative. So the call, as with all things in the Christian life, is unto balance. You'll find that quite often in the Christian world, in uh, debates about theology and debates about doctrine, you're going to find that there are typically extremes. And you're going to find an extreme on this end, and you're going to find an extreme on this end. And if you want to find out where God is in that system, you want to start looking right about here. Right about in the middle, because God is a God of balance. And in the church, we find that we are prone to extremes, that we'll, we'll 
swing one way, right? And then when we, perhaps the next generation of the church realizes that that was out of balance, uh, they might get a little bit troubled or resentful or whatever it might be, and they'll swing the other way, right? And they'll swing to the other end of the pendulum, and we'll just keep kind of doing this, and this is how humans go, right? We're, we're, we're pendulum swingers. Now, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? Prone to leave, leave the God I love, and yet we find God to be a God of balance, and so we want to start looking somewhere in that middle place when we're looking at these things. Are there symbols in the scriptures? Absolutely. Are there types in the scriptures? Absolutely. Are we going to take that then and we're going to look under every rock and crevice of the Old Testament to find something that symbolizes something else? Well, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. We know that there are these symbols. We know that these reflect New Testament truths. And the ones that we particularly know are there are there because, well, the New Testament has told us that they're there. But the danger comes when we say, well, because the New Testament says this thing is symbolic and that thing is symbolic, that must mean other things are symbolic too. And then we start concocting all of these symbols and we seek out our own symbols and we get caught up in all of the things that the Bible isn't saying that we think it should say. And then we forget to focus on what the Bible does say. So let's run down a few principles of biblical typology. And I'm going to run down these principles first, just to kind of align our minds to where, where, where Legacy Baptist stands and where my study uh, is drawn from as it relates to these ideas. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig into it uh, as it relates to the ark and the flood. So typology is the study of Old Testament people, things, and events. We would call those the types which divinely foreshadow New Testament concepts and ideas, which we will call the anti-types mostly relating to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, typology is not an exact science. There are many disagreements regarding what would make up a type-anti-type relationship in the Bible. The controversy lies in whether or not every resemblance in the Old Testament can, constitutes a, a type. Just because we can see a resemblance, does that mean that that resemblance is divinely intended? And that is one of the key points to a, an idea of a type-anti-type relationship. We are actually, what, I, what I'm doing this morning is I'm elevating the concept of a type-anti-type relationship above just a representation or a similarity or even just a standard symbol to a divinely intended ended uh, connection between some Old Testament idea, some Old Testament person, some Old Testament event, and something that God would bring about in the New Testament. So while these things truly happened in the Old Testament, these were historical people, these were historical events, yet when God brought these events to pass, he was doing so with design intended to connect them to something that we would learn about in the New Testament or perhaps in the book of the Revelation in, in, in future ideas, in future events, so that we can see those connections and even learn important lessons about what we are experiencing through what God has instituted in this Old Testament person, in this Old Testament thing, or this Old Testament event. And as I said already, the general philosophy in this church and in my teaching is that I try to stick as closely to the book as possible so that when I'm deciding what is a type-anti-type relationship, I'm not straying far from the things that I can point to direct New Testament references to prove. And that's just my general philosophy, and that's a generally safe place to stand. So I'm going to be much more careful about the things that I say in the Old Testament were intended design elements by God to represent some greater truth. If something is a type, then it is wholly worthy of my time to study and to prayerfully contemplate. If something is just a resemblance, 
it may or it may not be profitable for me to understand that in order to connect some dots, but it'll only be worth my time chasing down if I've got the time to do it because the Bible's not, not connecting those dots. I'll be connecting those dots. To that end, uh, the fivefold standard that I tend to follow as I'm going through a typology study process is this. First, that, a t- that the type and antitype share a genuine and substantive resemblance, an obvious resemblance between two things, be they people, institutions, events, or circumstances. There is an obvious connection between an Old Testament type and a New Testament antitype. Second, the type has a true historical purpose and context. The type is a real thing in history. The person was a real person with a historical purpose. The event was a real event with a historical context. We are not talking about myths. We're not talking about parables. We're not talking about allegories. We're not talking about the idea that something happened in the intertestamental period or in the New Testament, and so they made up some myth to try to connect that, that what's happening in their day to some biblical concept in the Old Testament. We're not giving a false historical context to a, a situation, implying that some false history was created specifically to lend divine credibility to a contemporary idea or a person or an event. We are talking about a true historical person or event. Three types have a predictive element, whether that's known or unknown at the time. The type is intended to predict something in the future. And we see this quite regularly with types. Again, we'll illustrate this with both the ark and the flood. So you'll get the idea of what I'm talking about as we continue in our time this morning. Uh, That though these people or these institutions or these events actually happened or existed, they reflect a uniqueness or a specificity that would later be connected to a predictive purpose. That as we look back upon those events, we say, oh, that event was not just an event, but it was a foreshadowing. It was prophetic. It was something that would, in a sense, happen again. We call that in prophecy dual fulfillment. Four, when we look at uh, the antitype has a greater or a superior spiritual purpose than the type which it foreshadows. The New Testament antitype fulfills the type. So if we were thinking of it as an actual prophecy itself, we would say, okay, an event happened in history, like the flood, like, like, like the building of the ark. Noah actually got into the ark. The ark actually happened. It was a real thing. It, it was Noah getting into the ark. But as God commanded Noah to build the ark and design the ark and get into the ark, he was doing so not just for Noah to be saved from the flood, but so that we could understand something about Christ. And so it had a real element, but that it had a predictive element with a greater or a superior spiritual purpose fulfilled in the antitype. The, the, Jesus Christ and salvation is a higher, a greater spiritual idea than the ark was initially. And so we see this elevation of spiritual purpose in typology. And then finally, there is evidence that the type-antitype relationship is divinely intended. Now, for me, I fall back upon the Bible says so, and that is, that, that is where I, I hold that evidence, that if God has told me in the New Testament that there is an, a type-antitype relationship, then I, I am going to say there's a relationship there. It's clearly divinely intended because God has told us it is so. And as I said, this is the one that people often get hung up on. They will see some resemblance in the Bible. They will chase it down. They'll concoct a huge narrative around it, showing how one thing symbolizes another thing, then connects the dots with other passages and symbols and people and events and numbers. 
But the one thing that they'll lack is any reason to think that God had ordained it to be so. And then it becomes no different than what we would consider to be pagan numerology or symbology. Because pagan religions, New Age spirituality, particularly Hinduism, many of the mystic religious systems see numbers and symbols as immensely important, don't they? Religion has always seen symbols as very important, not just the, true, the, the, the one true religion through Jesus Christ, but all religious systems. But if we don't allow God's word to constrain both the substance of those symbols and their meaning, then we run the risk of turning the Bible and the, the, the things that are in the Bible into just another subjective, dare I use the word pagan, practice of finding in the word of God our meaning, our truth. When in fact there is one truth, God's truth. And when we approach the Word of God, we are not approaching the Word of God to judge it. We are approaching the Word of God for it to judge us. When we approach the Word of God, we are not approaching the Word of God to find out what I think it means. We are approaching the Word of God to find out what God intended to tell us. And if we blur these lines of distinction, then we start to blur in, in this area, then, then that, that might carry over into other areas. And we bl- start blurring the lines of distinction in other doctrines where we say, well, the Bible says this, but I think it means that. And we start to impose upon the Bible our meaning, our truth, if you will. And in doing so now, we are judging the word of God rather than letting the word of God judge us. And we want to be careful of that. That's why we put checks and balances into our methods of interpretation so that we're not just... It's not a free-for-all, right? We have a method. We state that method. We live within that method because that method constrains us to confidence that what we are doing is we are drawing out what God had intended for us to know. We're not imposing upon the Bible what we think of God. And if we don't allow God's word to constrain, then we will we'll, we'll get drawn away from God's intended meaning. And there is, even in the Bible, a true distinction between what we might consider symbols and types. In the Bible, fire symbolizes something. As a general rule, fire symbolizes judgment in the Bible. But fire is not a biblical type predicting judgment. It's a symbol, right? In the Bible, leaven is a symbol of compromise. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But leaven is not predictive in nature, It is simply a symbol in the Bible. In the Bible, incense symbolizes prayer. That as people would burn incense upon the altar, that that incense would lift up into heaven. We see as we look into visions in the the prophets that there is incense burning on the altar of the Lord before the Lord in heaven. This idea of the prayers of his saints being lifted up to him. But incense is not a type. Incense does not predict anything. Incense is simply a symbol. In the Bible, there are numbers that are important. Depending on who you talk to, uh, there are a lot of numbers that are important. But we certainly know certain numbers are important. The number 40 is pretty important. The number 7 is important. The number 6 is important, and they have symbolic value. 40 seems to uh, symbolize something as it relates to trial or to transformation. The flood, 40 days and 40 nights. Moses, in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses, 40 days on Mount Sinai, receiving the law. Israel, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Saul and David, among other kings, reigned for 40 years. Jesus, tempted 
uh, after fasting in the desert for 40 days, right? 40 is a pretty important number. 12 is a pretty important number. 7 is a pretty important number, that number of completion, that number of perfection. 6 is the number of man, that number that falls just short of completion or perfection. And so we do see that there are these uses of these numbers symbolically, but not typologically in the Bible. And we understand these things to be so. They are symbolic, but as a general rule, they are not directly important to understanding doctrine or practice. Types, on the other hand, we would consider to be much more important. They exist to teach direct lessons about their antitypes in substantive ways about life and godliness. They warn. They exist to show God's design in history. They give us insight into current events or future events by virtue of their direct correspondence to historical events. And God uses these because, well, humans are very much helped by illustrations. They're very much helped by correspondences. That if I can take a known and I can wrap my head around the known, it will help me wrap my head around something that is unknown. If I can wrap my head around the simple, and that simple is pointing to something more complex, then it will help me understand the complex if I understand the simple. And a great example of this is, well, the ark. And a great example of this is the flood. So let's begin working through those types together. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the Bible says this, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. We've already talked about this verse uh, on several occasions already. Noah was warned of God of things as yet not seen. Though Noah had never seen a flood, though we might presume that Noah had never even seen rain, yet Noah acted in direct response to the promise of God, believing God above his experiences, believing God above his senses, and so he prepared an ark. Then there came the day when God commanded Noah to enter that ark. And the Lord, in his time, closed the door to that ark. We consider as well the size of the ark. We recognize that the ark was perhaps much bigger than it needed to be, perhaps telling us that God had made it big enough for more people. We talked through all of these things already. And so the ark became a vessel through which Noah and his family were spared from the judgment of the flood. Well, then we read this in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Our context here is Christ dying on the cross for our sins. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. We talked about that with the Nephilim controversy. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So Peter is writing of Jesus Christ here. He's writing of his death, of his burial, and of his resurrection. That Jesus suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, put to death by God. 
Verse 19 says he's preached to the spirits in prison. As I said, we talked about that with the Nephilim. That these spirits, um, uh, the Nephilim theory states that those spirits are disobedient angels who procreated with women, but the Bible doesn't say that. Right? Only that the spirits to whom Jesus proclaimed this victory were those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Naturally, this could just as easily be the people who rebelled as, as the angels that rebelled. Peter says that in that day few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Now, of course, this doesn't mean the water saved them. That doesn't make any sense. The water did not save them but rather the fact that they were upon the water. They were saved by being lifted above the water through the ark. And Peter says, the like figure, let me go back here, verse 21, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now, if you look up that word like figure in a a concordance, you'll find that the Greek word is antitupos, Anti-type. The corresponding figure that the ark being saved by water, but being lifted up above the water, being lifted up above the flood, is a corresponding type to a similar anti-type, to a, 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 a figure in the New Testament, to a baptism in the New Testament that saves us. Noah was saved by the baptism of stepping into that ark in that day of judgment. He was not saved by being baptized by water. As a matter of fact, if he'd have been in the water, he would not have been one of the ones that was saved. He was saved by getting into the ark, which was his baptism. It was that public declaration of the fact that he put his faith in God and he showed that, manifested that, by stepping into that ark. The like figure whereunto baptism doth also save us. Not the water... Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Not the fact that we get wet when we submit ourselves to believer's baptism. That is not the baptism here that Peter's talking about. He makes that very, very clear. But indeed, it would be a very strange sort of water baptism where the only ones being baptized are the ones not getting wet, right? The concept here is spiritual association. The baptism which the ark symbolizes is not being submerged in water, It's not the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but rather the answer of a good conscience before God. The aligning of our hearts with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, which tells us what? The the like figure, the anti-type type relationship is stepping into the ark, stepping into Christ. Type, anti-type. The ark is not just a symbol. It's not just an illustration. God designed the ark to be a type, to, sh- to be an actual, prophetic, spiritual representation so that when we start to think about what it means to accept Christ as a Savior, to step into the ark of salvation, I can think about what happened in Noah's day and I can connect this spiritual concept of believing on Jesus Christ to be saved, of the answer of a good conscience toward God, to this historical, physical idea of Noah saying, I have never seen a flood. I have perhaps never even seen rain. But on the day that God says that judgment is coming, I'm going to get into that boat. I believe God. And I'm going to get into that boat because I believe judgment is coming because God has told me it's coming. And I am going to get on God's side. 
type, anti-type relationship. This is the picture of the ark. The ark is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of taking an affirmative step of faith to enter into a promise of deliverance that was given to us by the word of the Lord. In Noah's day, that promise of deliverance was from physical judgment in a boat. But that was a type of a greater anti-type promise. Deliverance from spiritual judgment through the person of Jesus Christ. So that as we are in Christ, placed into Christ, as we step into Christ, we are surrounded by His righteousness unto salvation, eternal life, and we are lifted above the judgment that is surely to come. And let's talk about that judgment. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to take you now to 2 Peter chapter 3. And the Bible says this, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of the Lord, excuse me, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that, that then was being overflowed with water, that's the flood, right? Perished, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. As Peter finishes his second epistle, he calls his readers to be mindful of the warnings of the prophets and the commandments of the apostles. And the warning is that in the last days there would be scoffers. Men who are consumed with living in their own lusts, mocking believers, saying, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? All things are as they have always been. You crazy Christians have been saying for 2,000 years now Jesus is coming. Where's the promise of his coming? Is he delayed? Has he forgotten? Is he asleep? Did he, did, did he forget? With the implication being that the reason why they live consumed in their own lusts is because they simply don't believe Jesus is coming back. If he was coming soon, why hasn't he come? I mean, it's been, it's been soon for a little while now. Why should they constrain themselves to a life of any sort of virtue or self-sacrifice when he is so delayed in his coming? And Peter then connects this condition directly to the time just before the flood, saying that these men are ignorant of the word of God. They are ignorant of the example of other times when men said this very thing. They are ignorant of the condition of the hearts of men when men's thoughts were only evil continually, when men did that which was right in their own eyes, when violence was upon the face of the earth, and those people were marrying and giving in marriage and doing everything as they would normally do it, believing that the judgment that Noah is proclaiming will not come. It's been years, Noah. Where is this judgment you keep talking about? Jesus said these conditions were the same. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 39, he says this, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. They were going about their business, doing their thing. Noah was preaching the judgment. Noah was preaching the flood that was coming. Noah was preaching a day of reckoning. And they said, forget about that. Where's the promise of his coming? We're just going to keep doing what we do. With every passing year of Noah's faithful preaching, the people mocked more and more. You say judgment is coming, Noah. You have this boat sitting on dry land, Noah. But where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his judgment? And so they lived their lives. They pursued the lust of their own heart. They continued in their wickedness. And then judgment came. But by the point that the rain started to fall, the door to that ark was already closed. And notice what Jesus said at the end here. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Type, flood, anti-type, the coming of the Son of Man. The flood is a type of a much greater, more definitive judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just as in the days of Noah, the heavens and the earth are kept in store, reserved, this time not unto water, but unto fire, against the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, we see in Genesis 6, God announced 120 years until the judgment. It does not say that, that God explicitly told Noah of that 120 years. We, as we connect type to anti-type, we might actually assume, based upon our understanding of these things, that perhaps God, he had reasoned within himself that man's days will be 120 years, but he didn't necessarily tell Noah that the days would be 120 years. So Noah was building on faith. And we don't know how long it took for him to build that ark. Maybe it took him most of that 120 years. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe it took him 10 years, 15 years, 50 years, 75 years. And for the rest of that time, it was just sitting there waiting as a testimony to the fact that God is coming, that judgment is coming. But we know that Noah's generation scoffed at him for his faith. Noah's generation scoffed at his determined faith in the promise of God. Until they didn't anymore until the day that the earth was overflowed with water and it perished. And in these last times, as we hasten toward God's judgment and generation after generation scoffs as the followers of Christ devote their lives to this promise, acting in a manner consistent with preparation for a day when we know God will judge the quick and the dead, they will scoff and they will walk in their own lust and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? And we don't know when the promise of his coming is, but we, like Noah, believe that that promise is true. We live in the shadow of that promise daily. And we know that there's coming a day when God will close the door to that ark of salvation that God has been calling men unto from generation to generation through the church We'll even see it through the time of, uh, of the revelation as many people will come to Christ in that day. And, but there is coming a day where that door will be closed. And then comes the judgment. So the text goes on in 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's read verses 8 through 10. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, the idea that a day is as to the Lord a thousand years and a thousand years is as, as a day to the Lord is often used as a, as a way for people to justify the concept that God may have used evolution uh, in order, you know, the billions of years idea in order to bring about um, his purpose. So, um, you know, we talk about the seven days of creation and yet a day to the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. But that's not what this is saying here at all. And you can say that, and you can, you, can, you can go that route, but that's not what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying is that God is outside of time. When God says, I'm coming soon, soon to God does not mean the same as soon to me. That's the idea here. Because God is outside of time. Peter says, don't be ignorant or foolish. Just because it seems to us that God has delayed a long time doesn't mean that God is delaying. Doesn't mean that God is withholding his promise. Doesn't mean that God is forgotten. Doesn't mean that God has failed. To whatever extent we would understand God to be delaying his reckoning, it is for this reason and this reason only. Because it is, it is not God's will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And we should rejoice in that delay. Not because we, want, we don't want to see our Savior. We want to see our Savior. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But every day of delay is another day where people have the opportunity to come into that ark. Every day is a representation of God's long-suffering toward sinners. And so every day is a day that we need to take advantage of. This is another day where God has chosen not to come, where we have a day where we can call sinners unto repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. And when it comes... The Bible says it will come as a thief in the night. Jesus would speak about this regularly within his, his uh, parables and within his teachings. A thief does not come when it is expected. A thief comes when it is unexpected. It's a really bad thief that comes when he's being expected, right? It, the thief plots and plans and, and does everything he can, surveys a, a particular house or a particular neighborhood or a particular location specifically to find out when he will not be expected and he will go at that time. Jesus is coming. The day of the Lord's coming will be unexpected. Now, there's a lot that goes into this. We're not getting into prophecy today. We talk about our belief. We're a premillennial, pre-tribulational church, and we believe that, that, that the Lord will rapture his church out prior to the tribulation. And people and, and you say, well, if the day of the Lord is, is the day at the end of the seven years, then then how can we say that he'll come as a thief in the night if we have kind of this definitive timetable of seven years before when the rapture happens or three and a half years in when Antichrist reveals himself um, and, and the, he, he, he commits the abomination of desolation in the, in the temple? How can that still be a thief in the night situation? But, and we've talked about this before, go back and listen to my Revelation series if you haven't and you're curious about these things and, and you have the uh, endurance to listen to about 54 hours of teaching on the topic. Um, but if you go back and you listen to all of that teaching, what you'll find is that the day of the Lord is an event and a period of time. Just like if I were to say we're, we're going to go to the parade, if you go to the parade, there will be an event 
that is the parade, and there will be a period of time that is the parade. And prior to the parade actually starting, there's going to be cotton candy, and there's going to be a clown, and there's going to be a, a dunking booth, and there's going to be all sorts of things. And then you have the parade proper that comes, and when the parade proper comes, you watch that parade, and then when the parade's done, you go get yourself a funnel cake, and you, you whatever, you, you hang around, and you, you do the other things that are there, and then you go home, and they say, and, and someone asks, where were you today? And you said, I was at the parade. The day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, is both a time period and a singular event. And this is not uncommon in Scripture. And in my Revelation series, I defend that. Uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you'd like to. We'll we'll hit it again at some point. Not that thoroughly, but we will hit it again at some point. Um, But... All of that to say that when we, when we say that the, the Lord is coming as a thief in the night, when we, when we st- make these statements, it does not contradict the idea that there is a process of events that are happening because those process of events is where the thief in the night element comes in. So the day of the Lord is coming. It will come when the world least expects it. They will be going about their business. Then it will happen. The door to the Ark of Salvation at, at a point within the process of the day of the Lord will close and all men who rest outside of that Ark will witness the heavens and the earth shake with judgment against the ungodly until all is destroyed. <coughs> Excuse me. And we'd better be ready. And this message of readiness goes out not just to the unbeliever, but to the believer as well. Now, to the unbeliever, the message is plain. You don't know the day or the hour when Jesus will come. It could be before we're done here this morning. He is coming. And if you aren't in Christ on that day, you don't know what day you're going to die. But your death is coming. And if you aren't in Christ on that day, the next step in the process after this life ends is judgment. Because we do not know the day or the hour of our death, the day or the hour of of the Lord's judgment, any delay in our decision-making to enter into Jesus Christ for salvation is truly a gamble. You're betting, as the scoffers did in Noah's day, that God has delayed his coming and that that proves that God is not really serious about this thing. Because every day you wake up, the sun rises and the sun sets and things continue as they have, not realizing that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good as a manifestation of his presence and his faithfulness. But that day is coming. And even if the Lord's long suffering extends past our days on this earth, when your life ends, that door is shut. There's no second chance. As Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. If you were to die today, are you confident that you are in that ark of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ? If you are not, would you make today the day that you step into that ark? Where you acknowledge the promised judgment of God, you align yourself with that promise, you recognize, as John 3.16 says, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that you are a sinner, that you're separated from God, that you can't reconcile yourself to God, you can't avoid judgment on your own, but God has done it for you through Jesus. God has provided a boat, and if you'll get into that boat, you will be saved. Every person that got into that boat in Noah's day was saved. And every person that gets into that boat in our day will be saved. 
That boat in that day was physical. This boat is Jesus Christ. The Bible promises, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you do that today if you haven't? If you're not sure, if you don't understand, if you need a little bit more insight, if you have questions, come see me. I'll open a Bible and show you what it is to to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's to the unbeliever. That's a natural application to this idea of judgment. But you know what's interesting? It's that 2 Peter was not written to unbelievers. 2 Peter was written to a bunch of Christians. The warnings in 2 Peter are to believers. Instead of continuing on in this chapter, however, as we've read these warnings, I'd like you take, to take you to one more passage for our application this morning as it relates to most of us here who are believers. Another warning found in 1 Thessalonians 5 about this very same event that 2 Peter talks about. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, the Bible says this, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch, and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. So Paul's writing here to another church. He's writing to believers again. Interesting, all these warnings to believers about the Lord coming. Wait a minute, we're already in the ark. What's this warning about the Lord's coming? Well, and Paul explains that here. He tells them that they know full well the times and the seasons, that the day of the Lord will come using the same language as Peter, using the same language as Jesus, as a thief in the night. With Paul describing it in verse 3 as when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But notice here what then Paul says to his followers. Ye are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now, that doesn't mean that we have insight into the day and the hour of Christ's coming. As a matter of fact, when his disciples asked him about it, Jesus said, not even the Son knows the day or the hour, but only the Father in heaven knows the day and the hour. We cannot, uh, talking about numbers, right? We're not going to put a bunch of numbers together in the Old Testament, as many a, a person has tried to do, and put together when it is that the Lord will come, date, hour, whatever it might be. We're not going to address any Mayan calendar and say, oh, Mayan calendar says the end of the world is on this date. I guess that's the day Jesus is coming. That's not how that works. No man knows the day or the hour. But the difference is that as followers of Christ, like Noah in his day, we are positioned in heart and in mind to stay prepared. That is, Jesus said, if the good man knew the hour that the thief would come, he would have prepared. Well, we don't know the hour, so Jesus says instead, stay prepared. 
I don't know what hour the thief is going to come, so I'm going to position myself in my home to always be ready. I'm going to keep my doors locked. I'm going to keep the cameras on. I'm going to keep the security system set. I'm going to keep the dog unchained, whatever it might be. I'm going to be regularly ready because I don't know when the thief will come, but I don't want to be caught unawares. And I'm not in darkness that that day should overtake me as a thief because I know that Jesus is coming. I know it. So it's incumbent upon me to be ready. We are children of light. We are children of the day. We are not the children of darkness. We are not in the night. So then as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, as those who are children of the day, what should our faith in the coming judgment mean to us? We're already in the ark. Is that it? We, we, we get the get out of hell free card and we're good to go? That's not what the Bible teaches. We've already fled to the ark of salvation for eternal life, but what does it all mean for the years of this life while we wait for Christ's certain return? Well, Paul says this. He says, let us not sleep as do others. Let us watch and be sober. Let's take this thing seriously. Don't get apathetic. Don't get lax. Watch. Be sober. And then Paul describes what this means in verse 8. He says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. He says, live in the hope of your salvation because we know that we're not appointed to wrath. I'm not doing this because I'm afraid that if I don't, God is going to cast me into hell. God's already settled that. I do not live every day saying I have to live up to God's expectations out of fear that if I do not, he's going to cast me into hell. If there was any possible way that I could not, that I could, I could fall short of the salvation that God has given to me, I'd have done it already. If I can at all, if, 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 I, if I can earn my way out of heaven, then I, I must earn my way into heaven as well. But the Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The Bible says, by grace, we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. And so this is not saying, watch and be sober, lest you fall short of salvation. This is something different. This is a different sobriety. This is a different watching. If you aren't a child of wrath, as they are children of wrath, if God does not judge the righteous with the wicked, we've already covered that, if you aren't a child of the darkness, but you're a child of the light, then live it. Live it. Live like it. Live into it. Don't live like a child of darkness. Live in faith. Live in love. And what does that look like? I said one more passage, I lied. Still one more. Ephesians 5. Verses 1 through 7. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love. That's what we were called to do in 1 Thessalonians, right? Faith and love. Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. 
as followers of God, walk in love, live as a child of God, not as a child of this world. Why? Because that's what you are. You're a child of God. Live like it. Live like it, Christian. And Paul's teaching here, again, is not intended to be understood as a warning that if we do these sins, we are not going to go to heaven. After all, the Bible says that the reason Jesus had to die is because we cannot be righteous enough for heaven. And if we cannot be righteous enough for heaven, even on our best day, how can our unrighteousness disqualify us from heaven? It makes no sense. It makes no sense. But the idea is this. If indeed you are a follower of God, then what business do you have living in the sins by which the judgment of God will fall upon the unbelieving world? If God found you living in the gutter, dressed in rags, hungry and starving, wallowing in the mire and the muck and the mud of your own sinful choices, and he pulled you out of that gutter, and he cleaned you up, and he dressed you in the, the, the clothes of a king, and he put you at his table. What are you doing pushing yourself away from that table, taking off those royal garments, putting your rags back on, and going and sitting back in that gutter? If you're a child of the king, then live like it. Act like it. You don't have to be in that gutter. They have to be in that gutter. They've got nothing but that gutter until they come to the king. But you're a child of the king. So get out of the gutter, put on the royal garments, and start living like it. If you're a follower of God, how can we live in filthiness and foolish talking and jesting? What business do we have in lust and in covetousness? How can we live in lies and in anger and in vanity? We see how these are the very things by which the wrath of God falls upon the unbelieving world. And by the way, these are the very things that make the unbelieving world so miserable. So what are we doing living in them? And if we are those of whom that day of judgment will not overtake us as a thief... It is because we have responded by faith to the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ. And if we have responded by faith, we have no business walking in the shame out of which we have already been delivered. But the warning is deeper still. Because even for the followers of Christ, remember well that the promise of judgment still remains. That judgment is not a judgment unto the lake of fire, it will not end in damnation. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 warns us that our works will be judged unto reward or loss. 1 Peter 4, 17 says that judgment will actually begin at the house of God. There's coming a day where you will answer for the things you have done. Not unto heaven or hell, but unto reward and loss. What's that day going to look like for you, Christian? The way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 3 is a pile of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. We talked about that symbol of judgment that is fire. And the Bible says that the fire of God's judgment will fall upon that and that which will remain will be our reward. Obviously, the gold, silver, and precious stones are those things of virtue, those things done in faith, those things for the Lord. The wood, hay, and stubble are those things which we as believers are doing, but not for the Lord but for ourselves, not for the Lord, not, not in the spirit, but in the flesh, not spiritual, but carnal. How big will that pile be on that day, Christian? 
And it is this reality that compels us to walk as children of light. To live in faith and in love. To cast off the old man and put on instead the new man. To walk not as fools, but as wise. And as we consider this final time, the ark and the flood, we are reminded that the ark, that type of salvation, very important as a connection to the salvation of Jesus Christ, very important specifically as a means by which for us to articulate to the unbeliever their need. But the flood, that type, that type of the day of the Lord that's coming, that's not just a picture for the unbeliever. It's for the believer as well. That's for us to consider as well. That's for us to think on as well. That's for us to, to, to uh, reckon ourselves in relation to as well. We spend these moments remembering just how momentous, dramatic, and terrible that judgment of the flood was. We find that that type is yet a, a type of a, a greater anti-type that is to come. That the time of judgment that we read about in the flood, where all things were destroyed by water, will, if typology is as I've presented it to be, where we see that the, 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 the Old Testament type is, is, is in its own right a very important thing, but then it actually symbolizes something greater and higher and more spiritual. If that is the case, then we might imagine that the flood, as devastating as it was, so devastating that the, that the earth may very well still be feeling its effects will perhaps be nothing compared to the judgment by fire that's yet to come. And so my final exhortation, as we close our message today, it's not going to be very creative, it's not going to be very deep. As a matter of fact, it's just going to be one verse. That one you see right there, that last verse here of Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 7. Be not ye partakers with them. That's the call. That judgment, it's not meant for us. We have been saved from its wrath. So don't live like the children of wrath. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.